month continues on pretty good vibrations a podcast that both analyzes and celebrates pop and rock music in this case emo rock music and its crucial role throughout our lives i am really excited today to share with you part one of a track by track episode through jimmy eat world's album clarity with clay hunt Clay spent years as a touring and recording rock drummer, and he has a lot of interesting things to say from a drummer's perspective about this record, and especially Zach Lynn's drumming on the record. Nowadays, he's an artist manager. You'll hear a little bit about that at the beginning. Uh, and yeah, so if you uh, if you like what you have been hearing, and you have friends that you know love Clarity as much as you do maybe forward the message to a few of them. I'd appreciate it, especially as the new show gets rolling. Word of mouth is the best tool we've got. All right, let's talk about Clarity with Clay. Clay Hunt, friend, thank you for being here. We are but two small instruments here to uh, extol the <laughs> the glory of the Jimmy Eat World album Clarity. And I'm oh, glad to man. have you with me. Glad to be here, man. Glad to see your face. It's been a long time. So you used to be a touring rock drummer. These days, you are an artist manager, and you work with Chris Stapleton, Joy Williams, Avi Kaplan, and Ben and Aaron Napier, who I had to look up because I don't watch any HGTV, and my mom literally was sitting next to me when I was doing this. And so I was like, hey, mom, do you know Ben and Aaron Napier? And she said, yes. Ben is the one who looks like you. <laughs> that's the connection. And I said, well, that's funny because the friend I'm having on to talk about this album who manages Ben and Aaron Napier also looks like me. That's what people tell us anyway. So do you ever, like, how far does this extend? Do people tell you that Ben looks like you or is that, are you too many clicks away from him? Am I the midpoint between you and Ben? I get mistaken for ben regularly you know we'll we'll occasionally like uh if i'm like coming into town or like we're going to be somewhere together or sometimes we'll coordinate outfits just to mess with people and because it, it, it really does work that's awesome like it's, it's well hilarious. all i know is that if you and i are ever in the same city so if i'm in nashville you're in seattle or we're both somewhere else for halloween you and i are both going as ben napier to the same Done. party together we've got our Done. we've got it settled so when I asked you to come on, I wanted to do an episode with you. You suggested, yep. can we talk about Clarity or Bleed American, the Jimmy Eat World albums? And I said, let's yes. do Clarity because that's first chronologically. And I want to do, I want to do totally. Clarity, Bleed American Futures, that sort of holy trinity of emo rock albums. But why did you want to discuss a Jimmy Eat World album? Why was that your first thought? Oh man, Jimmy Eat World, I would have to say is my favorite band of all time. Clarity specifically represents probably more like musically associated memories than any other album that I, you know, have like when I was still playing, like it, Zach Lynn's drumming. It, it, my, my Holy Trinity has always been Zach Lynn, Taylor Hawkins, Dave Grohl. Well, really it's, it's a Holy quad because I also can't not include John Bonham in there as well, but yeah. Zach Lynn, well, Grohl and Hawkins were almost never playing at the same time, so they can sort of exactly. take turns with that spot, right? 
Yeah. But anyways, all that, like Zach Lind and just the way that he approached songs and the pure musicality was there, but also like in, you know, he never took away. It was always adding. And especially on that, that record, like just, uh, the, the, the tones, like the drum sounds that they got were incredible. You know, when you have those seminal moments, like growing up, like for me, it was like watching bottle rocket mm-hmm. when I was like, Oh, this is what, like, this is what like cool movies can be. Yeah. Jimmy world clarity was kind of a similar moment of just like, Oh wow. This is like what, this is what music can be. You know, like, I really love this. I, I need to find out more about this. Let's dive in here. And it's also just such a weird time too, because this is internet's young. This is pre really knowing anything or you definitely need social media or anything like that. So you're just like trying to like, you know, go to Barnes and Noble and, pick up spin or rolling stone and totally hopefully there's an article about it in there and you hear the, the you know the hearsay here and there of like what's going on it's just it was a different world informationally so it was just like man i i love this band i want to find out everything i can about it well let me uh sweep the dirty stairs here briefly briefly i don't know if these <laughs> these clarity puns are going to work let's just clear a little space i'm going to give a brief history of the band Jimmy A World forms in Mesa, Arizona in 1993. Within a couple years, their final lineup is established and has continued to this day. They are the same uh, four-piece band now for going on 25-plus years, which is pretty remarkable. Lead vocalist and lead guitarist Jim Adkins, rhythm guitarist and backing vocalist Tom Linton, bassist Rick Birch, and drummer Zach Lind, who we've already talked about. They technically released a first self-titled album in 94. It's rough. It's out of print. It's not on any streaming services. They only printed 2,000 copies. So in 1996, they released what is, for all intents and purposes, their true debut album, Static Prevails, on Capitol Records. Compared to Clarity... It's more guitar-based. It's more angular. Uh, Vocal duties are split evenly between Jim and Tom. And then once we hit to Clarity, it's Jim's the lead singer. Um, I think Static Prevails is underrated and has a handful of very excellent tracks. I've already talked a little bit about it on the Emo Chronology episode, which uh, I believe aired right before this episode. But briefly, let's just hear a little clip of the song Digits. Love it. So good. Just so, so good. So Clarity is their follow-up to Static Prevails. They go back to Mark Trombino, who produced Static Prevails. The label cared so little about the band that they just gave them carte blanche. I assume they had a guaranteed second album release through Capitol with a guaranteed budget. And so the label, if they're uninterested... The, the simplest way for them to cut bait is just to give the band their recording budget, let them do whatever they're going to do, and then just shelve it, That's which is what they were probably planning to do. Obviously, it didn't end up happening that way, and we'll talk about that. But don't, isn't that what happened probably? They, they just got the budget, so they made the record, and they didn't fuss about it because the label <clears throat> didn't anticipate liking it very much. 
It's so it's so different now because we live in a world that I think is closer to what it would have been like in probably the early fifties, you know, kind of the early where it's it's a back to yeah, it was back in the fifties, it was about singles and yeah. songs that were breaking out like that, but it wasn't about albums and you see this transition through the sixties and then obviously seventies, eighties, nineties. You know, I would imagine then that they would have had that deal, I believe it was with Capital at the time. You know, usually, you know, most recording contracts are it's you know it's a guaranteed one, and then there's an amount of options. The options are all on the label side; the label can pick it up. So there, you know, if it's coming out the first, then it would have probably been at some point somebody at Capital would have had to say, "We are okay with exercising the option to move forward with the second record." Just because the the budget's approved and you can move forward and you start recording doesn't mean that record actually ever comes out. You know, that's right. the thing yeah. that it can be finished so often, but shelved. Right. One hundred percent. Yeah. It, you know, and they will just take it as a loss. And, you know, it, it's it's something they just put at the end of their year end ba- right. you know, balance sheet in the PL and yep. it moves on as an expense and that record stays there. And sometimes, you know, you're able to the artists are able to get that back. Sometimes that album stays shelled for forever. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you just never know. That Luckily enough for us with this and for all these fans of Jimmy World, that, yeah. you know, somebody there at Capitol liked it enough. Well, it was it was their A&R, Craig Aronson, who's kind of famous in the rock go. and emo yep. world. And so I think he advocated for them. So they record drums at the legendary Sound City in Van Nuys, California. If you haven't seen yep. the Dave Grohl-produced documentary about that called Sound City, I definitely recommend it. Then they had another six weeks at Clear Lake Audio, a cheaper place in North Hollywood. That's an, like a little behind the scenes from someone who's made rock records, email rock records. That's a nice, comfortable amount of time to make an album. Basically seven weeks for Sherwood's third record, Q, we had two months, and that was significantly better than the 35 days we had for the previous album. They had time to experiment. That's going to come in uh, multiple times, I'm sure, as we're talking about various tracks. And they, and according to them, they assumed because of their strained relationship with the label, and you know, with hindsight, we know that they became a huge cult status rock band, now one of the most consistent sort of, you know, ticket sellers in that genre. But without, you know, if we don't have that hindsight, they're assuming this is our last record. And so they are like, let's throw everything, throw the kitchen sink at it. Let's get wild with instrumentation. The reason that it was almost going to not come out, Craig Aronson sort of worked behind the scenes on their behalf and got uh, fueled by Ramen, which was, you know, uh, Vinny from Less Than Jake's label, to release an EP yeah. with two of the songs from Clarity and then two other songs. And one of those was Lucky Denver Mint, and it started getting played by K-Rock in Los Angeles, which then got it onto the soundtrack for Never Been Kissed, the Drew Barrymore rom-com. Oh, yeah. Brief aside, in that film, when she finally is kissed, you know, the titular kiss, the song playing in the background of the film is Don't Worry Baby. Just figured you might want to know that. Beach Boys, wherever we can get them in. Anyway, because of this momentum, Capital then's like, all right, well, we're going to release it. It's being played on the radio. They put it out in February of 1999. It was, however, considered a commercial failure by both the band and the label. Of course, it did go, uh, had a long groundswell, became a cult classic. Rolling Stone, for instance, has it as the 13th best emo album of all time. Bleed American is number eight. 
But six months after its release, it was not doing well. Capital dropped the band from their roster. So we'll pick up that business thread on the next, you know, the Bleed American album. But that's kind of the context for Clarity getting out into the world. We're in this really interesting space when you think about not only Clarity, but you think of any of these records that's going to come out from kind of 98, 99, all the way through kind of, let's call it 08. 2010, somewhere there. There's such an upheaval in music. We go from CDs to Napster and yeah. LimeWire and all of that stuff into the iTunes store. And then obviously then Spotify comes around really in 08 and then doesn't really get picked up until kind of the early 2010s. And now obviously streaming is everything, but it's it's kind of working in almost like a different world back then, you know, which is really, really interesting. Another really kind of fun side note here so um through lake audio we actually for so for my band dismas for our debut record we recorded drums at clear lake audio nice and it was this like insane moment because it's funny like we we did drums there and then we ended up working at our producer's house to do the rest of the overdubs and everything like that but to go in there record you know obviously they didn't do drums there but, but yeah they did the rest of clarity there it was also where um no doubt did a part of tragic kingdom and Adrian young was a huge influence on me, you know, so getting to work in this studio where some of these records that had been absolutely seminal for me growing up and kind of shaping who I was as a player, getting to be in that same room was, you know, in that same space was really, really, you know, incredible. That's so cool. Yeah. We never, we never did much at like studios that had lore that I knew or cared about we ended up doing like you know fat mike's studio in san francisco which he had built and then brad wood's studio which he built in his backyard um which is which is an awesome studio fantastic just doesn't have you know we didn't do anything at like capital records studio a you know we never did the session there or whatever which is fine you know i had a pretty good a pretty good time you mentioned napster so Napster yep. actually was first released into the world like four months after Clarity comes out. And yep. when we get to the Bleed American episode, I will be talking about file sharing was really important to sort of the interstitial period between Clarity and Bleed American because there were these yep. demos that came out and I was like, would get them and, and knew a bunch of those songs before Bleed American was released. One of the early kind of file sharing bands for me. But before Napster and before, especially before Spotify, uh, you've got this situation where if you get an album, you first have a physical item and then you have the music files that that physical item plays, right? Yep. So let's talk a little bit about the artwork because we would have absorbed the artwork before we heard the music uh, when when we got this record. My question to you, is the cover of Clarity peak 90s emo artwork or can you think of something that actually tops it four images depicting abstract textures and colors text used non-linearly so you got the zoomed in clarity that's like bottom to top and then you've got the straight i mean it's like it is so indicative i think it may be promise ring nothing feels good that's very classic or american football that's very classic you know, emo artwork, but it's right up there, man. 
Man, it's so funny because the the one that came up into my head was also a promise ring. Nothing feels good. Yeah. Was just like yeah. the other. It's just quintessential for yeah. for that time. Oh, another one. Uh, Modest Mouse, uh, the Lonesome Crowded West. Yeah, and then I was thinking mineral and and serenading as well. Like you got the yep. the sans serif text. You've got like a yep. photograph of something that's like it's a picture of something real, but it's not like it. You don't you can't tell if it's important or not. Yep, <laughs> it's only important to the person who wrote these these you know personal songs or whatever you know. Totally. Anyway, so one other thing about the artwork is on the CD image when you would take it out of the case, it was a black CD, and it said in you know just in silver, so no ink. Can you still feel the butterflies, parentheses, 64 minutes and six seconds? The idea yeah. being that, like, you know, ha- this thing is one uh, artistic whole, which is something that all of us told ourselves all of our albums were, <laughs> whether or not they were. Uh, but they're making that, you know, the the lyric, can you still feel the butterflies, is, of course, from the song, For Me This Is Heaven. I'll, I'll play a little clip here. Can you- So even though CD technology allowed us to skip tracks, you know, more easily than LPs or cassettes, it was still preferable if you didn't have to, right? You'd always, you'd love those CDs that you could just play all the way through. That was a real value add, I think, in that era. Yep. And I think they're they're saying it's all one piece was like a statement that said, listen to this thing straight through. And I think they made decisions that, are evident on a closer or repeated listens, but I thought we would save that. And I'll ask that question at the very end. What stood out to you going through and discussing this sort of front to back and then anything from, you know, sort of past listens we can talk about as well in terms of the album as like a single 64 minute piece. Sounds great. Okay. Let's get into it. Track one table for glasses. You know, Table for Glasses is one of those songs that as soon as it comes on, it's kind of a rush of, uh, there's, I don't know, it's like the, the like the montage of life from basically the moment of hearing this record all the way to present, because it represents so many very vivid moments, but also it's just kind of general, like just getting in the car, you turn that record on and, you know, we spent so much time, especially on the road touring it could be, you know, going on a drive to clear your head when I was, you know, growing up in Lancaster, California, in the deserts, you're just out there, or it could have been on a random road in Montana or Iowa or Massachusetts, wherever, you know, that, that record, yeah. it, it's this, it's this through line. And especially that, that opening 
where it's just guitar, ride, vocal, and that huge, you know, room sound, snare drum. It's just like, it's like an old friend, you know, that just kind of shows up and you're like, okay, yeah, this is and good. And as a drummer, is it like, <laughs> is it convenient because it sort of makes you think, hey, just hitting a snare drum can be profound and deep. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and that's what was so amazing about hearing this record for the first time, especially where it hit me. Uh, I think I was like 16 when I heard it the first time is like, you know, still learning what it means to be like a drummer in a band in the musicality of it. It's not just hitting something. It's, yeah. it's like you're, you're a part of something bigger. There's no kick drum, no bass. None of that stuff fills out until you obviously get through the first chorus. Yeah. And the best players it's more about what they're not playing versus what they are playing. It's the space that they leave in there. And so it was this really kind of like epiphany moment of like, man, I can leave a lot of space and the magic is found by what I'm not doing as opposed to what I can do. Yeah. Just in service of the song. Yeah. Are you saying, so if you, if you hear a song and you hear the last 23 years of your life, compressed basically there's a cheaper way than having your life flash before your eyes right before you think you're going to die just identify the songs that have been with you and you could get like 60 yeah. percent of the bang for a lot fewer bucks than risking your life <laughs> totally clarity is one of those rare records like i can't really i can't really jump in and jump out of it you know mm. like it really it's become such a the intention of what they had by putting, you know, putting that on the, on the CD, it rings true. Yeah. You know, it, it's just this great piece all the way through. And, and it really does take you on a very real journey, you know? And this is a kind of a specific announcement too, of like, you know what, we're, we're going to take our time with that journey. We're not in a rush here. And of course totally. they prove that at the end, big time. Um, so this is going to probably come up for me throughout, the episode that I don't have a lot of individual associations with individual songs. I think because I've listened to the whole thing just too many times, but I was trying to think like most succinctly, this song puts me back in my high school bedroom. Boombox is on the dresser along one wall. I'm lying on my bed playing this for like the 40th time at that point. And and like when everything kicks in on this track at 15, 16, whatever, I, I feel like so seen and understood. It's, yeah. it's like, I think that when everything kicks in in this song, it's sort of what teenage hormones feel like. Uh, it's yeah. like the sonic version, at least for like, I don't know, nerdy uh, guitar and drum obsessed sort of kids. So... I present to you here the soundtrack to my personal teenage brain's chemistry. <laughs> fun now i don't know how fun it was then it was meaningful then yep tumultuous 
I think that what they're doing in this song, sort of arrangement-wise and songwriting-wise, is they're showing us the first of their two best tricks. Mm. And they're showing us the first one right off the bat, and that is layering for emotional effect. Yep. That is one of Jimmy Eat World's superpowers. This entire song is one big exercise in slow layering. Like you're talking about the drums. He's playing drums 17 seconds in, but we don't get a kick drum until almost three minutes in. And Clay, as a drummer, you can attest to the rarity of something like that. I, I can't think of another song that does that, actually. Definitely not to kick off a record. Yeah. You know, like, like usually, you know, especially at that time, I feel like, um, similar, similar bands that were doing similar things. Usually that first track is like a, it's usually like a kind of a barn burner. You know, it's usually something that's got a lot mm-hmm. of energy. It kind of bleed American. Right they the do that, right? That first track Absolutely. is bleed American and it's loud and it's right up yeah. front. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, or even you go to futures, you know, like, like exactly. very futures consistently, well. they've always like gone like, like it's just right in it. But you even think about bands from that time, you know, I think of um, their, their contemporaries, but not the same band, but um, uh, are you going to say get up kids holiday from something to write home about? Cause that's where my mind goes. Loud. That was that. I mean, that is one for sure. The one that actually hit me was, um, was Arkansas from uh, at the drive-in. From relationship oh, command. Gosh, yes, so good. If this is a complete tangent for you know the for me the holy trinity of like kind of that time period emo, post hardcore hardcore whatever it is that all kind of work together it was Jimmy World Clarity. It was relationship of command by at the drive-in and then the shape of punk to come by refused. Like those three records kind of working together to just <sighs> basically change. Everything. <laughs> the course of your life. Uh, just because yeah. we're talking about it, let's play a little bit of Arc Arsenal, which is, I mean, this is one of my all-time favorite openings to an album, maybe even openings to a rock song. Yeah. So point taken, right? Like that's the standard move is yeah. bar and honestly static prevails too. thinking that's all is a loud opening track. Yeah. And they really, they mostly have done that. Um, but it, it makes this decision to, to start with table for glasses, all the more conspicuous. I think that they're basically saying like, Hey, chill out, stick around, investing your time and attention is going to pay off here. It's a incredible setup for, the journey you're about to go on. Yeah. And they're announcing that they've grown up as a band. Like, yeah, you're going to hear a lot more than drums, bass, and guitars on this album. You're going to hear strings, glockenspiel, marimba, drum machine drops, synth pads, hand percussion, various studio trickery, basically all that's in this track. And then of course, layered throughout the record. So let's talk briefly about lyrics. This is going to be pretty true for me. Mostly the lyrics on this album don't mean anything to me. They're like, they're just vague enough to put myself in them. I don't really know what most of these songs are about. As I've read through lyrics, 
I have gotten most of them wrong, yep. or I've gotten significant lyrics wrong for almost every track, apparently, for t- yep. <laughs> 23 years now. Okay, well, whatever. So, like, for instance, I thought that lead my skeptic sight was leave my skeptic side, like leave me alone. Yep. I'm a, you know, which is a very kind of, I don't know, emo teenager uh, thing to think about. Anything on the lyrics for this track for you? No, it's the same thing. I, uh, it wasn't until watching the, um, they did some live streams over the course of yeah. the pandemic and they did one that was clarity and there, there was like a graphic that like, uh, or like a, a light, you know, kind of projection map thing that brought the lyric up in the, the space they were playing in. And I was like, cool. I've been missing that for yeah 23 years. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> you know, but it, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I, I totally relate to you too. There's only a couple tracks on here where like the lyrical content like ever like hit me in like a super kind of visceral way. But everything else, it's so much just about like the feeling, the emotion behind it, how everything works together, the just the flow of the tracks, and just again being on that journey and it being about the totality of what's there versus like what specifically is being said it's what the entire track is saying as it all works together yeah let's go to track two lucky denver mint as heard on the never been kissed official soundtrack So this is the perfect track, too, because it announces their second of their two biggest tricks. They are honing in on pure pop Mm. songwriting when they want to. Yes. The first chorus hits at 39 seconds. The second chorus hits at a minute 23. There's so many layers going on, but there is totally always space for that vocal. It's so memorable. It's so catchy. They're not fighting with it. It's a pop song. But... All that layering, you know, makes it really emotionally resonant. I feel like in a lot of ways that song sets up kind of the rest of the career and what they're known for. You know, what they really become known for on Blue American yeah. and Futures and everything beyond there of like it's it's a pop song in this emo framework. And it, it's why all these songs are still so memorable and why they eventually be you know had this breakout success is because they were writing really great songs at the end of the day. Like the, like structurally they're so sound mm-hmm. you, you see at the end of lucky Denver, man, I mean, at the end of um, table for glasses, but where it's really using you know, Jim's voice on the record, but then also like um, Tom and then oh, what's the bass player's name again? Um, Rick, the, the, the fact that you hear them starting to do um, like kind of the, the, uh, the harmonies, as well you know just like but really smart everything again everything is really efficient i guess you could say you know like there's no um and you know how hard that it is i mean as a as a songwriter and someone that loves pop music like it's not easy to do that 
to really like to edit down, to hone in on those moments that also then still work with everything else. Like it's a really, it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's a, it's a tremendous amount of talent to be able to, to understand how that all works. And I tend to think that that gets accomplished by honing in on the song first and then mm. like going to town with all the layering and other elements. And I think that yeah, that is not the default way that rock bands work. I think that rock no. bands tend to start by playing their instruments. They're playing guitar or whatever. And, and so you kind of have to, you have to do this like meta analysis of it and then go back and edit those parts and not fall in love with those early instrumental ideas you have. Yep. Uh, if you want to do what they're doing here so successfully, that that's how I tend to conceive of it. I think that's probably how it goes. And, you know, pop songs do take a lot of work and a lot of passes and, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about production a little bit. Cause the production on this track is, I mean, they are peacocking a little bit is, is how I want to oh, put yeah. it. Right. So yeah. we've got this, like, especially this drum echo effect at the end of the track. And they let that go on for a while. You know, they they sort of luxuriate in that. You can hear some of that earlier in the song. And this is my drum nerd corner, Clay. I'm wondering yeah. if you ever heard this. So in the verse, you have that effect, that echo effect. It's not quite as, it's not as loud as it is at that very end. But listen, you can hear there is an echo on the snare drum. So it sounds like a little bit like a double hit, like a bucka instead of a ba. Yeah. Yep. So there's a slap back that we're hearing on the snare. Yep. And then this is where I get nerdy. In the chorus, he has one drum fill that he does, and it's just a double snare hit. It is exactly, he's actually playing the two snare hits instead of a single one with a tape delay on it. Bucka, bucka. Like, that is so, it's so consistent. It's so thoughtful. I don't know if that's like a happy accident, but knowing just how uh, careful of a drummer he is, I doubt it. I doubt that yeah. that's an accident. I I doubt that it'd be a accident as well. I, you know, I think that all those things were probably very intentional. And in, you know, as a when I was still you know playing full time and recording, I remember that first record that we made there, you know, and recorded there at uh, Clear Lake. We spent so much time in pre production, like talking about drum fills and where they're going to go, and, and just hearing you know and reading about what they've done. I I would imagine that that was all probably very like intentional. Yeah making it work with everything that they were trying to put together there. There are like nine elements doing 16th notes throughout this song. Yeah. That's the, the fat, you know, but 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 that's the 16th note rhythm. Two or three of them, at least are guitars. There's some sort of sequencer type synth or two, uh, that you can start to hear in the first verse. Like, but what I love is that you really can't tell where all those rhythmic sounds are coming from. They're just like 
audio layers that work well together. And you can really hear how much time they had to make this record on a song like this, where that would take a lot of experimentation to get to those final pieces that you can't just, well, let's just play 16th notes on some instrument and it'll just work. No, it's like audio is more complicated than that. You have to find that, find a niche where something else will fit and actually add something and not just make it muddy. It's very hard to do. Yeah. Well, and, and also you're talking about a time as well where Pro Tools was still a very new thing. A lot of people were still recording to either tape or ADAT or, yeah. you know, just it, it was a different thing. So they're, you know, programming on actual drum machines that are physical things. And then right. you have to load that into this, you know, so it's not like now where you'd program that in some other, you know, MIDI controlled, whatever you dump it into logic or pro tools and you edit and everything can move really quickly. I mean, this is a, you know, spending time having to re kind of work something and then record it there and drop it in. I mean, it's a really, it's a pretty incredible luxury that they had to yeah. yet to spend the time because it's not like now where you can kind of do everything that I just talked about in maybe 30, 45 minutes of just kind of dump it. I mean, this could be hours of work of just having to, go through and get the right thing kind of tweaked there and then you drop it in and it doesn't convert you know it's it's a really yeah it's pretty incredible what they were able to do like you said because they had the time but also they were just able to dive in and they weren't afraid to kind of play with those things a lot of people would be very intimidated by how much that's going to take to get that thing done i don't have any personal associations or memories with this song again i've I've just listened to it hundreds of times um anything in particular pop out for you this is one of those songs that, um, again, just kind of became a part of everything that was happening. Like, you know, you put, you always excited. It's like, you knew that this was kind of the, if it had been kind of like the ease in with table for glasses, like lucky Denver Mint was like, like kind of the shot in the arm. Like you're yeah. just off to the races at that point. Perfectly said. Well, let's continue the race. Track three, your new aesthetic. kind of like this step up you know i feel like those first three songs all together of like you've got some of the eases you in and this is the shot in the arm this is where you're there and then this song is just like it comes out of the gate like you're like oh maybe this is kind of like a little bit subdued and then it drops in and it's really interesting too when you think about it in when you think of like the timing of like this is obviously written in the late 90s and the early 90s influences would have been there of like even like nirvana or like the pixies where it was like Everybody talks about like loud, quiet, loud. Like this is, yeah. And, and you know, the big release was always in the the chorus and everything like that. But it was usually in a very loud way. Where this is like, it's a little bit of tension right there at the beginning, and then they really they hold. It's kind of incredible because they hold the tension basically all the way until you get to the bridge. The bridge. It's a great release, and then it goes back into like drops back in it. it but it, it you. It, it's been kind of like this like slow easing and then all of a sudden with your new aesthetic, it just like, you're like pinned at 10 the whole time. And it, it's just, it's an incredible moment. I really love it. And then also the, the palm mute 
like the chunk all the way through and they really hold that in this incredible way and they don't really let you go of it. And that's a, that's a really incredible kind of use of feeling, you know, and kind of song craft all the way through. They are also an elite palm muted guitar band. Yes. Like there are a handful of bands. Like I think Reliant K is one of those bands. I would agree. I think hoops, hoops has just figured it out. There's something about the technique that, it's it's like all the percussiveness, none of the muddiness that is very common when you're when you're using the the palm side of your hand to sort of partially mute the strings. It's not like <laughs> it's an art and man, Jimmy Eat World does it as well as anybody. I mean, this song to me, yeah. when I first heard it, I would have thought, "Oh, this could have been on Static Prevails." It's just like a really mm. tight Jim is singing more pushed you know, less less sweetly uh, than some of the other songs. And uh, yeah, you're basically, I, I agree with you about like just having this true rocker. And that's something that they, they've always done. Like Bleed American starts with the big rocker title track. Futures has Just Tonight. Yep. Uh, Invented has My Best Theory. Surviving has Criminal Energy. Um, sometimes Tom sings these songs. There's like one of these kind of active rock radio almost type type things. But I think that, this song is interesting because lyrically, as far as I can tell, it's about sort of the artistic rot of rock radio. Yep. Which, you know, the backstory with Capital and all that, you know, they they ended up they get dropped by Capital, they end up self-funding Bleed American, which ends up having a number one alternative hit yep. in the middle. You know, it's interesting that they're kind of <clears throat> lambasting rock radio. I think that's what the lyrics are. And then they kind of go on to, to, to keep kind of trying to recapture the magic of the middle, at least on some tracks on every album afterward. But at this yep. point, they're just frustrated as all hell with the big machinery of a major label that doesn't care that much about them. I think this was a, you know, whereas like you're trying to figure out what they're saying in the first, you know, in, in table for glasses. And then like you never meant, like you can kind of like, grasp onto the, you know, you're not bigger than this, not better. What can you learn? All that. And then with this one, it's just kind of like, okay, cool. I'm just enjoying the feeling of this. Like, this is just good. I'm yeah. like, I'm there. And and also like for me seeing like drums, even like, it's like table for glasses is like open sparse. You get a little bit more in kind of that really, what I think became like the Zachlin kind of signature style in lucky Denver, man. And then with your new aesthetic, like, that, like those big Tom fills that you see later on in like a stay by my side tonight and things like that, where he's not afraid to like really take the kit that direction. You you get kind of that, that journey kind of through this whole thing. It's, it's really, it's pretty awesome. Seeing the world through a drummer's eyes. Thank you for that. Clay. <laughs> Absolutely. man. Okay. Track four, believe in what you want. Get yourself, you know, they want money. Well, nothing can be good on its own. Just a merit spinning and spinning. Do you believe in what you are? I always liked this song. I wouldn't skip it, but... On these re-listens, that chorus is really sticking out to me. Um, I, I love the the vocal hook. And then there's that really chaotic lead guitar in the right ear. Yeah. 
in those choruses, which just kind of keeps noodling higher and longer than you'd think it would in for a, a controlled kind of a band. This is going to be kind of funny. This might be my favorite song of all time. What? Whoa. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, I'll take here. Uh, Burying the lead. Yeah, man. Wow. I, um, so the first time I heard this record, uh, it was me and a mutual friend of ours, Tim Parker. Yeah. Which we can dive down all sorts of fun trails there. But um, That's how we met. That's how we met. Yeah. yeah I mean, just for, for you guys out there, a little background. Dan uh, went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Some of my best friends from high school ended up going to Cuesta, which is the community college there, and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. They all met. Sherwood actually started in some of my best friends from high school's garage. And our first practice was in that garage. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Dan and I met, gosh, almost 20 years ago now <laughs> there. Yeah. Yeah. Some like weekend you came up to hang out. And yeah. We, we talked late into the night about probably Jimmy. Probably. World, it probably did. <laughs> it's um, this full circle. Super full circle moment. So anyways, I remember being in, in my car, me and Tim were heading to our, uh, our end of sophomore year. Um, choir concert spring choir concert and nice. he had a couple cds with him one was built to spill keep it like a secret like a secret and um and then jimmy world clarity and so we listened to a little bit of keep it like a secret yeah. loved it you know the plan all that still great but i remember we put on jimmy world and i was like man this is awesome and it got to this song and this is the moment when you know when it was like um well that the open line of um don't bother going through your motions. Yeah, through your motions, nothing that makes sense ever works out. As a 16-year-old kid in Southern California, you know, in the throes of emotion and trying to figure out what you're doing and yeah. dating and girls and so angsty. All this, yeah, I was like, yeah, man, you know, don't bother going through nothing. <laughs> nothing that makes sense ever works out, and it's so funny thinking of it from like that perspective, oh, you know, it's like a kid little, play. Oh yeah. Yeah. Know, I'm sure with like bleach blonde tips and all that, you know, <laughs> was, was the time at that point. Um, good. Wearing a billabong yeah. sweatshirt. <laughs> the pride of Lancaster, pride California, of Lancaster, man. Um, but yeah, we, I remember driving to this choir concert and being like, what, what is this song? What is this? album what is this band and i think from there like downloaded some stuff on napster bought the record you know basically just was all mm-hmm. in at that point and it was really it was this song this song and then it, it was just there and it continued to come up you know as you're going through being in a band and traveling and new relationships and breakups and all those things you know like it just yeah. always kind of was this constant that I would come back to. But, you know, so was that on the, the, this was the one song that like lyrically, I think always had like some resonance, but for me, the, the thing on the feeling side that has impacted me more than anything with the song was, you know, dropping in it's, you know, tight hi-hat kick snare. And then that release going into that, that chorus, you know, it just, it's so big and sprawling and goes from straight to then, He's going off the backbeat a little bit, you know, Zach Lind yeah. is and everybody else is just like kind of, it's either Jim or Tom doing that lead line too. You know, it's just, yeah, it creates this whole other soundscape. And, you know, also as of, you know, it, it was so formative in, you know, my approach to then how I was 
crafting my parts for the band that I was in. And even when, you know, got yeah. to record for a little while, just always trying to capture what that was. Cause it is this like, Oh wow. This is, it just opens the, like, the world opens up at that point. That's so cool. I mean, I don't think I would have pegged, you know, this track as like the best song on the album or that, that it would be anybody's like favorite song of all time or in the running for that. Um, but it, it does make sense hearing you talk about it. What I was thinking is that it's so interesting lyrically, like what you took from it as a teenage boy was this like, you know, angst about relationships that make sense on paper or whatever. Oh yeah. What I thought it was about was like, believe in what you want. I, I interpret it as like broadly anti-religious. Yeah. And I think there's maybe some of those lyrics of Jim's like over the years. It's not like a big theme of his or anything. Maybe there, maybe I'm even making that up, but you know, I was an evangelical high schooler and to some degree, I think I was trained in that subculture to, to look for kind of religious minority status or yeah. a complex there about being persecuted or whatever. But actually it's, it's not, it, it makes more sense in the context. Like we've been talking about with the label, it's about making music and, you know, putting flyers up all over town, but then, but don't kid yourself, you know, they want money. Yeah. And then the lyric of the bridge, which I never knew at all, uh, until recently is your camera flash on us meaningless. But then there's also what you ignore is priceless to me. So there, there, there is this priceless thing about writing, recording, performing music, being a part of a scene. Yep. But then there are also these big money machines that are going to choke that shit and ruin it. And so you and I each brought something very different to totally. it and it meant something different to us. And it's, it's cool to see that kind of Rashomon, like, three angles type of a thing. Well, and isn't that what is so exciting about music and why we fell in love with it about music podcasting? Yes, it is. Definitely that's why it's so great exactly. to podcast about music. <laughs> no, I mean, just in general, like that sentiment of like, we can look at literally two sides of the same coin, you know, on this one, but it, it just, obviously like the older I got more, you know, understood those, themes you know being the people trying being one of those people trying to put those flyers up all over town and, of course yeah. and, and trying to go through it you know um but you know at the time it was so much more about tapping into where i was as a 16 year old kid growing up in the desert in southern california and just wanting to you know wanting the girlfriend you know or just somebody to you know all that that stuff so just badly funny. yes <laughs> so yeah. badly yeah those, these first kind of four or five songs on the record, I feel like are always, even if I can't listen to the whole record, I try to always listen to all four or five of those together because it's just, it's this perfect pattern, you know? Yeah. Well, let's do one more track before we break. So this is cool. track five, A Sunday. Ahead of their time, you don't hear it on that one, but later on, the there's a there's a hard auto tune. Live with that, with that, and I was like, dude, they like 
anticipated T-Pain there. They did. They did. Let's man. see. Did they? I got to look up when T-Pain's first singles were. Oh, man. That's a good question. 2005 debut album. So they definitely did it before T-Pain. Yeah. Look at that. Just influencing early hip hop, you know, or 2000s hip hop, I should say. When was the, sh- when was, um, do you believe in life after love the share song when was that because that was like the first great question that was the bit the big usage of it yeah 98 the year before okay share so, beat Cher, him to it share was yeah. she uh they <laughs> credit where credits do it is, yeah you know for ruining vocal delivery in pop music i guess we don't i don't know that anybody wants credit for uh utilizing autotune like this also, a uh, very, very prominent usage of Glockenspiel on a pretty rocking track. Yes. There's a good lineage there. Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run, etc. Then later, Arcade Fire would use the Glockenspiel to, to good effect. But not a thing you heard a lot of, you know? When you think about the Glockenspiel there, I also think of like the early, like the, the chimey guitar parts at the beginning of... Um, the first track, you know, when, when it kind of jumps in there on table for glasses, like you've got this kind of similar thing that then happens on a Sunday. You know, so yeah, it's eighth note chimey parts that are, that don't have breaks much that they're basically playing, you know, bum, 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 bum. They're playing almost every yep. beat of an eighth note pattern or table for glasses Bum 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 right yeah so that they're kind of it's a motif throughout the album and it reminds me of Lucky Denver Mint their sixteenth notes it's bada 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 and they're not they're just making these like um rhythmic you know they're they're both percussive and melodic right because they're playing notes but they're doing very rhythmic things yeah and what's incredible about a Sunday, and I feel like uh, anybody that's our age or that has listened to this record as much as we have, uh, to me, this is like a, uh, this is the perfect, like, sad boy emo song from that time of, like, <laughs> you can think of, like, breaking up with your high school girlfriend or that high school crush doesn't really like you or, you know, even being like, oh, I don't know what to do now that I didn't make the basketball team or <laughs> something. You know, they're just like... And if that thing happened to you, if you got word from the coach or if you got dumped yep. and it happened to have been a fucking Sunday. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Then it's just seared into you forever. It is, man. It was the, you know, you get out into the car, you you open up your hundred CD booklet or whatever it is that you had laying on the floor and you put it in and you go to this song and, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're yeah. just ready to jump in, man. Yeah. To just feel a lot of things. I was never this kind of person, but I had friends who would have like rituals and and this is the kind of thing where it's like a type of a ritual someone might have is like every Sunday morning I play track five on clarity a Sunday and I start my Sunday that way. Like it's, it's a perfect for that era when, when that took, now you just click it, you know, you put it on your phone. Like, I don't know, it's, there's no ritual around it, yeah. but if you have to go get the disc and you always do that, it's like taking the Eucharist every <laughs> Sunday morning. It becomes ritualistic and meaningful. <laughs> totally, man. Totally. Speaking of the Eucharist, so growing up evangelical, I thought that he said, I have to change it because I sin myself. Oh, wow. That's what I thought the lyric was. It's not. It's 
That's 36 less hours I have to yep. change the course I send myself, right? Like it's he he breaks up the the sort of um, flow of the thought, you know, at, at weird points because of the syllables and all of that. But I spent you know 20 plus years thinking, oh, Jim Atkins, at least he knows he's a sinner, so he's got. So he's got the first of the four spiritual laws <laughs> what <laughs> sorted an, out. What an incredibly evangelical way to look at that. Uh, I've never heard that. Dude, I mean, it, but, you but know. I, I can totally see that you, again, because these are, it's so much about like the feeling of these songs, even versus yeah. like what the the lyrics are. You kind of like ascribe whatever it is, but it, it all, it always just yeah. comes back and kind of can encapsulate a moment or moments. Well, let's take a break and uh, we're going to come back next week to do tracks six through 13 and, and do a little wrap up session for part two. Thanks so much, Clay. Thanks for having me.